0: Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by the 90 Min Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simeon, and we're going to be bringing you our tactical analysis of Arsenal 2, Crystal Palace 2. And as always, uh, there is plenty to get into. Disappointing result for the Gunners. I think a lot of us felt that after the last few weeks, we'd we'd started to turn a corner results-wise, that we were on a much more positive path. And we talked about the importance and the significance of Arsenal being able to take maximum points from the upcoming fixtures against Palace and against Villa, and we've already fallen at the first hurdle. So there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of frustration. And a lot of that stems from seeing a lot of the same issues. You know, for me, that's certainly the case anyway. And I can only speak for me, but it does feel like the problems that we're going to talk about today are problems that we see time and time again, are problems that just, you know, follow us around everywhere we go and and that we can't shake. And that is a big, big worry. You know, it's coming up to two years that Mikel Arteta will be in charge in December. It will be two years. And I understand that this is a long term thing. And I understand that there is a real need for change and reform. And that doesn't always happen overnight. But there comes a point where it's really, really difficult to defend the process when we are constantly seeing dull football, when we are constantly struggling to create good opportunities, when we're constantly getting it wrong tactically against people and managers and clubs who you would perceive to be inferior to us. And it's it's really, honestly, it's a worry, it's a concern um before we dive into it let me say a few hellos because there's plenty of you in the live chat box to say hello to david to ebby to john uh to don to jid um to everybody else in there as well hope you're all good um i can see we've got a few dislikes on the video already we had 15 dislikes before it even started my god i must have pissed some people off uh in the last few days but uh thank you to those who have hit the like button Uh, it is very very much appreciated um and uh, and let's get into this tactical analysis then. So we talked about some of the points briefly on the reaction show last night. But as I said, I always want to watch the game back again. I always want to sort of draw some better conclusions, I guess, or more accurate conclusions once I've had time to watch the game back, assess it, understand exactly what went on and t- almost take the emotion out of it. Because I feel like when you're in the stadium or when you're... Um, You know, when you're in the stadium or when you've just finished watching the game, your reaction will be overblown, whether that be positive or negative. You win a game, you're the best team in the world. You lose a game, you're the worst team in the world. That's how it feels. And that's why I'm always very keen to make sure that while we'll be putting out those post-match reaction shows, which I know a lot of you enjoy and thank you uh, for your support of those. We will continue to do this tactical analysis or tactical breakdown, whatever you want to call it, the following day where we do look at some of the ins and outs of the game in a little bit more detail and with a little bit of a cooler, calmer head. If I said that I woke up this morning not feeling disappointed and frustrated, I'd be lying. You know, I I am. And not even because of, you know, it's. But put it this way, it's not even that deep for me. It is simply that we missed an opportunity to really make a point and really start to get ourselves back on the right track results-wise. And I talked at the start of the season when we lost to City and when we lost to Chelsea about the fact that our season would not be defined by those fixtures. Those are teams that, in my opinion, are much superior to us, teams that are much stronger than us and teams that, quite frankly, we don't have any right to beat. But our season will be defined by games against the likes of Crystal Palace against Aston Villa. Who are to come to the Emirates on Friday night. And therefore, it becomes imperative that Arsenal pick up points in those games, and especially at home, pick up maximum points. And we fail to do that. So there is an overriding feeling of disappointment. There is a frustration because of some of the issues that we've seen. The fact that we keep seeing them week in, week out has to be a concern. A lot of it is on Mikel Arteta, and we're going to come on to the tactical side of it and what exactly. Uh, it lays at his door. Uh, we're also going to talk about some of the individual players though as well because there were some issues there as well and there were some moments that obviously led to to our downfall that were caused by individual mistakes and individual mistakes is something that as a manager, I said it last night, you know, to a degree you're responsible for because if someone's a repeat offender and you're constantly picking them, then you obviously have a part in that. But ultimately, it's not something that you will legislate for when producing your game plan, when laying out instructions to your teammates. You don't, I'm sure these managers don't sit there on the training ground on a Friday and say, in the event that Thomas Partey gets dispossessed in the midfield, um, or in the event that Sambi Laconga gets dispossessed in the center of midfield, this is what needs to happen. It's something you don't legislate for. And unfortunately, it's something that we keep suffering from. And I don't really know what the solution is, barring changing all these players, which we've done a lot of in the last couple of years. What is the solution to that? Is it a mentality thing? Are these players switching off? Is it lapses in concentration? Is it because their fitness levels are not where they need to be? Because I know from playing football to a relatively high standard when I was younger, that when you're tired, your decision making is affected, that you will choose the sloppy route sometimes, that your touch will be that little bit heavy that puts you in a bit of trouble, that your reactions just slow down. So is it fitness? I I, I don't know. There's so many things it could be, so many factors, so many variables, which is why it's so difficult to pinpoint exactly what the problem is. But let's talk about the team that Mikel Arteta picked. And I think we, you know, we all agree that the back four and the goalkeeper picked themselves now. You know, and and we all agree that Pierre Emerick Aubameyang is the first choice striker at the moment in Arteta's eyes. Anyway, we'll come on to talk about whether he should be in a bit. I think we all thought that um, that Thomas Partey was going to play. We don't really have much choice now that Granit Xhaka's out, And, and there are people that wouldn't even hear of dropping Thomas Partey. But Thomas Partey's been poor a lot of the time in an Arsenal shirt, or at least average. And we didn't bring him in to be average. We brought him in to come in and transform our midfield. I remember at the time we signed him, one of the words that was constantly used to describe Thomas Partey was, he is a transformative midfield player. And I think there were flashes at the beginning of his Arsenal career that showed that he could be that man. And I still think he could be. You know, this is not me digging Thomas Partey's talent out because there's lots of talent. It's not even me questioning his commitment. It's me questioning the way he is being deployed at this moment in time. And it's simply wrong. Simply wrong. He was a colossus against Tottenham when he played alongside Granit Xhaka. And I hope now that a lot of you that give me stick and criticism, um, you know, constantly because of my maybe backing of Granit Xhaka or, or feeling that he is still the best option to play alongside Partey. I hope now that you're starting to see and understand what it is that he brings to the team, the positional discipline, the awareness of what's going on around him, the the physicality. You know, he's not the most mobile player, but he's certainly a big lad. He doesn't get pushed around. He doesn't shy away from challenges. And I think we are badly, badly missing him. And I talked over the summer constantly about how the decision to not reinforce that midfield further by bringing in an experienced, ready-made player that could come in in the absence of either Xhaka or Partey, would come back and bite us in the arse. And I think this next three months that we're going to be without Granit Xhaka, you are going to see that. You really are going to see what a big difference it makes when he's not in our side because he's nowhere near as bad as people make him out to be. And unfortunately, now we're in a place where we don't really know what the solution is. We don't really know what the right thing to do is. Odegaard tucked in alongside Partey at times yesterday doesn't suit that role at all. You know, yes, it's nice to get him in the deeper position on the ball sometimes, but that should be done as a spare man, not as part of your defensive structure. You know, we talk about Maitland-Niles. I don't think he's ever done enough to suggest that he should be starting in Arsenal's centre midfield. I don't think Mohamed Elneny is good enough. And so we have left ourselves short and there's no you know, there's no explanation for that. You know, there's no justification. We spent a lot of money in the summer. We did some good business, I think, for the most part, but we missed one of the positions that was, for me, if not the most, definitely one of the top two or three most important positions we needed to address, and we didn't do it. And now we're going to suffer, and now we're going to struggle. And just looking at the way we lined up, Um, I'm using the graphics from from sofascore.com and I think this is probably quite accurate. Thomas Partey was almost deployed as a kind of one-man midfield um, with Odegaard Smith-Rowe playing in slightly more advanced roles. Bukayo Saka operating from the left, Pepe from the right and um, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang through the middle. And it worked at Burnley to a degree, but it worked at Burnley not because we played incredibly well, but just because I thought we defended quite well in terms of as a back four and we managed to get over the line having scored our goal. It was a brilliant individual goal from Martin Odegaard and we pushed on and we capitalized on it and we made sure that we didn't do anything silly, didn't concede and we came away with the points. But Partey in that role it worked that day and it worked that day why because Burnley played with a flat four in midfield which means they have two central midfielders. And when you've got two central midfielders to contend with. Somebody like Partey can quite often do that, but also he had support from people dropping deeper and playing alongside him. The reason this is so different, or the reason that the Crystal Palace game was so different, is because they play with a three-man midfield. And I mentioned it on the show last night. If you cast your minds back to the preview show that I done, where I picked my lineup, I said clearly that you cannot put Martin Odegaard and Emil Smith-Rowe in there alongside Thomas Partey if they are going to play with Luka Milivojevic, James MacArthur, and Connor Gallagher. That midfield is far too mobile. It's far too physical. It's far too experienced. It's far too competent to leave Thomas Partey completely outnumbered in the middle of the pitch. And for large periods of the game yesterday, he was overrun. For large periods of the game yesterday, he struggled. For large periods of the game, he was constantly under pressure because he was swarmed by Palace players. And he gave the ball away sloppily, just like he did for the goal. And we'll talk about that goal now, because that was the catalyst for Crystal Palace's, you know, believing in that they could come back and and believing in that, you know, they could get a result out of this. But let's be honest. Crystal Palace grew into this game from pretty early on. Crystal Palace were in this game after 15 minutes. They started uh, poorly. Arsenal started well. We had them rocked. We had them up against the ropes. We had them playing on the back foot. We were pressing aggressively. We were doing everything right. But the minute they got a bit of a foothold in the game, and listen, it's the Premier League. You're not playing against pub teams. You will have times in every single game where you're not completely on top where you're not completely dominant. That's just the nature of this league. It is that good. It is that strong. But it's important that when those periods come, first of all, you limit how long they go on for. And second of all, you recognise what your problems are. And to be fair to Mikel Arteta, to be fair to him, he did spot at halftime that we were getting overrun in the midfield. And he made the change. He took Bukayo Sakharov. I think that's probably partly due to the knock he picked up as well. Um... You know, um, you know, that's partly due to the, the, the knock he picked up as well. But Mikel Arteta made that change. And I, as I mentioned last night, I was sitting there looking at it and going, I'm glad you've done that. I'm glad you've spotted that Crystal Palace are all over us like a rash in the middle of the park, that we're unable to control the game anymore, that we're unable to dictate the game as a result of their dominance in the middle of the park. And you've brought on a more conventional, deep lying central midfield player in Sambi Laconga to try and deal with that issue. But of course, it was Sod's Law that Sambi Laconga was one of the players that let us down with a with a silly error. But let's let's go back to the Partey, um, you know, the, the first goal. Because for me, this is really poor from Thomas Partey, but it stems from us being poor in terms of our movement, in terms of our positioning. And in terms of our general setup at that particular point in time. So if I show you here, this is where Thomas Partey receives the ball. And you can see that in and around him, there are one, two, three Arsenal players. Two of them are within his eye line, Sambi Lakonga and Ben White, who's pulled out to the right-hand side, to try and, you know, show him an option. But when you look at that and when you focus on it, really in a lot of detail. If Thomas Partey plays that ball into La Conga, is La Conga in a particularly good position? No. There's still three Crystal Palace players within close proximity of him, and he's in a wide area, and he's under pressure, and he hasn't got much inside of him to pick out. Does he go down the line? Well, Nicolas Pepe is not in a particularly good position. Emile Smith-Rowe is hiding behind his man, and so going down the line feels like a dead option as well. Does he go back to Ben White, who could then potentially play it back to Aaron Ramsdale. I don't know, but that hesitation, the fact that there is no clear option for Thomas Partey causes that hesitation. And that hesitation leads to him being dispossessed and Crystal Palace breaking away with the ball. Thomas Partey wants a free kick. I don't think it's a foul. I don't think we can have any complaints about that. I don't think it's it's an issue. But the point here is that none of the options available to Thomas Partey when he receives the ball here are particularly enticing, are particularly appealing, make him feel as though he can play that pass. And that little bit of hesitation led to one of two things last night. On two occasions, we lost the ball and we conceded goals off the back of it. But on other occasions, we just hit the ball long without any real target, without any real intent. And the ball was coming straight back. How many times during that game against Crystal Palace did Takehiro Tomiyasu smashed the ball forward. Nicolas Pepe came back a few times and smashed the ball forward. Gabriel did it. Ben White did it. They all did it because there was no options in the midfield because Palace used their numerical advantage in that particular area of the pitch caused by Odegaard and Smith-Rowe being the two playing alongside Partey. More so Odegaard, who was, you assume, tasked with playing that little bit deeper and and was really poor. Um, You know, them not being in those areas... Is what allowed Crystal Palace to grow in confidence, to step further up the pitch, to start dominating us numerically in that area, and in the end get their reward for it. So I feel as though Mikel Arteta is to blame for this. I, I still think it's poor from parte. I think you protect the ball at all costs. And if you see you're in trouble, you smash it out and you um, you know, you have you, you give your teammates a bollocking and you make it clear that you don't feel that you were given an option. But this all stems from the way we approach football matches, from the way we are drilled in playing. And that is for players to kind of, you know, be in in these very specific positions at times, even when they're dead positions. And us being a little bit robotic in terms of not understanding the needs of the game itself. And look, a manager's job is to change things and a manager's job is to notify, uh, or is to realise these things and then try and put them right but you've got to have some footballing intelligence as well. And I don't think a lot of our players have shown that in recent times. Then obviously the the play moves on and Christian Benteke gets the ball inside the box. And just watching this back again, you know, having watched the game again this morning, I, I don't feel like Gabriel does enough to make it difficult for him. I'm sorry. Like I, I get that you've got to be um, you've got to hold him up. You've got to stand him up. You don't want to commit yourself. I get all of those things. They're basic principles of defending. But it just seems far too easy for Christian Benteke to cut inside onto his stronger right foot, make the angle and fire the ball into the bottom corner. And and that for me is poor. And and when you look at the way we're set up here, actually, there are three Arsenal players back. Um, Christian Benteke's got the ball. And, and, and in terms of in and around him or son Eduardo is within close proximity but it's not one of those ones where arsenal have overcommitted, lost the ball and then we've got nobody back to deal with the situation we have players back and that's a consequence of our very rigid style of play it ensures that we don't get exposed numerically too often but you know when we do on the odd occasion when we do you have to defend one on one better and i don't think this was particularly good defending uh from uh gabriel i got to be honest let's um let's take it on a, a little bit further let's look at let's look at the second goal as well because that was equally as frustrating and this time it was uh, albert laconga who got dispossessed now he's a lot higher up the pitch here albert laconga but again you look around the pitch and he's got one option available to him here. And that option is Ben White, who is six, seven, eight yards deeper um, and and is waiting for the ball. Um, it hasn't got his body set for the ball. You, you feel like a pass into him uh, at that particular moment would be an issue, would be a problem, uh, would would need him to adjust. So maybe there's a hesitance in Conga to play that. But look at everybody else. Takahiro Tomiyasu is the man um, on the edge of on the edge of Crystal Palace's box. Thomas Partey's inside the D, not really doing much, not really offering much. Emil Smith Rowe is to the right, but he's being marked. Nicolas Pepe's in a dead position, and again, this all stems from there being a lack of options and a hesitance in the player on the player's part who's currently on the ball, and then he gets caught out, loses the ball, and then Crystal Palace go down the other end and they score. And for me, um, just taking it back to this clip here, again, if you look at it, we've got players back, we've got players in the positions to try and prevent this going in. I, I cannot for the life of me understand why Ben White backs off for so long on, on Son edouard Now, I understand, again, the, the desire to hold him up, to hope that your teammates can get back and help you out, or that you delay it enough, or you know, close the angle enough for the goalkeeper to be able to then make a save. I get all of that, but surely there comes a point when Eduard is driving at you that you have to say, fuck it, I need to commit now And and I can no longer prolong this. I can no longer just be, you know, a bystander and let this continue. But he doesn't. He lets him get into the box. He lets him get four or five yards into the box and then allows him to unleash a shot that goes into the roof of the net and you're sitting there and you're thinking it's poor but again you know we've been outdone because we've given the ball away in a sloppy position and then we've not defended one-on-one situations well enough to prevent our opponents finding the back of the net and unfortunately this Arsenal team is not good enough um, to, to have lapses like that and still get results why because we don't create enough because we don't create with enough regularity because when we do get forward we seem so lacking in ideas and one of the players I really wanted to talk about um on yet it based on yesterday's game for me was was Kieran Tierney because I was really really disappointed by his you know, and, and and let's let's have it right I don't think Kieran Tierney's played well for a little while now if I'm being completely honest. But I was really disappointed by his Lack of a willingness to beat his man or take on his man, he, he he got forward quite regularly. And if I show you Kieran Tierney's heat map, you can see that here. You can see that Kieran Tierney was in the opposition half the majority of the time, but Kieran Tierney normally goes that little bit extra and makes that run beyond his man or or has the confidence to take on that player and try and get to the byline and maybe pull the ball back or put a cross in or, or make something happen. And there was this reluctance to do that from Kierantini yesterday. Now, I don't know what the reason was, but he always seemed to want to take that touch, bring the ball back inside, which is where Crystal Palace want you to be. Uh, but it's where they've got plenty of bodies and play the ball back to his centre-back colleague, infield to a midfielder who dropped into a really deep position. It was just very unambitious from Kierantini. He wasn't the only player, but the reason I highlight Kieran Tierney is because he's normally someone that's so important in our build-up he's normally someone that plays such a big part in the way we attack in fact we've talked time and time again about how we're over-reliant on Kieran Tierney's ability to get forward and that completely evaded us last night and it was a big big issue I think tactically there were a few things as I say I think that Mikel got it or, or was right to um you know to make that change in terms of um of the midfield. He wasn't to know that Lokonga was going to be one of the players to give the ball away. I told you guys before the game, I'd have started that way because I feared that Crystal Palace would overrun us in the middle of the park. And they did. It came true. Um, We reacted to it at halftime. And to be fair, at halftime, we were leading the game by a goal to nil. So you can't, I don't think you can really stick the knife in about that. But I think that it's it's just, look, it's another clear indication of how much we're going to miss Granite Xhaka. And people don't want to accept that tough. You know, it's fact. It is fact that we are missing a player who sits in that deeper position, who has the tactical discipline that Granite Xhaka does, and then allows Thomas Partey to play his game. Now, remember, it's not just about Xhaka being in the team. It's about Partey being at a higher level. And Partey is at a higher level when he's alongside Granite Xhaka. And then we're getting the best of both worlds. Partey having to overcompensate for midfielders or lack of around him is going to ruin him. It's, he's going to overexert himself. He's going to get injured. He's going to struggle for fitness and he's going to look like a pretty bang average player, which is unfair because he's not. So for me, there are just, you know, I I wondered how, when we heard the news about Granit Xhaka's injury, how we would cope, how we would look to move forward, um, for that period of time that we're gonna be without him. And I said that there were a number of options. I think what is abundantly clear is that the option of putting um Odegaard in that deeper position is not a viable or sustainable one, and it's not one we should be considering. I'd rather he picks Lokonga every single week. He's a young player. I know he's going to make mistakes. I know he's going to make errors. Pick him every week. Let him develop. Let him learn. Give us that extra stability and structure that the 4-2-3-1 system gives us overall and build on that. Instead, we're pissing around with it week in, week out. We're doing different things week in, week out. We didn't get anything from our fullbacks last night in terms of attacking output, not from either of them, which made it difficult. We didn't get, you know, and and people have slagged off Nicolas Pepe and I I didn't think he was particularly good last night. I've got to be honest. But it's very difficult as a winger to make things happen when you are so heavily marked, when you're playing against the side who have clearly identified you as a bit of a A danger man and have done a bit of a number on you. And as the game went on, Palace sunk deeper and deeper and there wasn't space for either of the wingers to run in behind. And with the absence of those overlapping runs from the wing backs or a midfielder who was getting close to them, trying to make things happen and combining with them, I felt that we just looked really, really toothless. Didn't deserve anything from the game. Very fortunate to get a point in the end. We take it, we move on. Um, But there are serious questions that need to be asked about a lot of the issues that we're seeing at the moment because they're ongoing issues and ongoing things are things to be concerned about. And, um, you know, that's um, that's where we're at at the moment. Is Mikel Arteta going to be sacked? No, he's not. Uh, so if you think that's the case, then I, I think you're way off the mark. I don't think he'll be sacked. I think uh, the, the fact that we found that equaliser obviously, I, I don't want to say takes the blow away, but it certainly softens it in terms of how the club will probably view the result, go and get three points against Aston Villa and we can kind of look to rebuild again. You know, we're not, we're not beaten, which is, which is obviously something that we can take up as a positive and having lost our first three games to be unbeaten in five after that feels like progress, but is it enough progress? And that's the big point here. It's probably not enough progress and that's where Arsenal, um, you know, are, are going to come unstuck, are going to fall short, and we're going to end up underwhelming um, again. I've, I've talked about other elements, which I won't repeat, about uh, the the reliance on on young players to deliver week in, week out, which is just something think that doesn't happen or rarely happens in modern day football. And and we've got to be aware of that. I, I've always said it: there are going to be ups and downs, um, and, and I expect that to a degree. But what I don't expect is tactical mistakes on a regular basis. What I don't expect is individual errors to occur on a regular basis. And if those things continue, there is no way that Arsenal are going to challenge for the top six, which is where I believe we should be uh, this season. So, um, yeah. Let's um, let's take a couple of questions before we wrap up. Um, let's take this one from Bonster, who says, uh, what do you make of Mikel Arteta's post-match comments? about wanting the team to play more offensively, but his instructions were not followed by the players. If I felt, and just based on on what you're saying, that um, if I felt as a manager that the players didn't follow my instructions, I'd be pretty fucking embarrassed about that. And the fact that he has, if he has, you know, kind of alluded to that is, is a little bit of a worry. You know, as a fan, you're looking at that and you're thinking, does that mean that he's lost the dressing room? Does that mean that people aren't buying into what it is he's doing? I don't really think that he's lost the dressing room because I think the fact that we did fight back was an indicator that we did kind of at least try um, or, or that it wasn't due to a lack of effort and it was more down to a lack of quality and a, and a lack of of sort of um, competence in a tactical perspective. So I don't know, man. I think it's really easy for a manager to say they didn't carry out my instructions. Why were they not able to carry out your instructions, though, is the question I would throw back at Mikel Arteta. And I think it's a good question and it's an important question because I think a lot of the time we are set up in such a rigid way that we cannot um, release those shackles without Losing that defensive stability and the the balance is just not there. And I've been saying that from the day Arteta arrived, the balance is missing, and it's a little bit worrying now that we're at a point almost two years into his tenure where we've still struggled to find that. And I get it when you change players, you need to recalibrate things, and that balance changes. And you know, certain players' his individual kind of attributes will contribute to the overall balance of the team, and you need to find the the, the right kind of formula. But you know, there are worries that we're, you know, we're toothless. And if Arsenal were at least creating opportunities, but giving the odd silly goal away, I'd kind of be more accepting of that. But when you don't create chances and you still give those goals away, then that's where you've got to be concerned. And, and that's why last night was largely incredibly disappointing for me. Um Let's just pick out uh, one more um One more question. I'll take this one from Mr. Joe Curry says, have we plateaued under Arteta? Is he a one hit wonder with the initial six months and cup win? Look, I think Mikel Arteta is a good coach. I do. Um, And I think he's got all the attributes of someone who will learn and will develop and will probably eventually be at a very good level. But is he there now? No. You know, it's it's like Emile Smith, Rowan Saka, right? They've got loads of talent and they will get there. We're all confident that they will get there but can they be relied upon now? Are they at the level in which, at which a Manchester United or a Manchester City or a Liverpool or a Chelsea would rely on them every week? No, they're not. Um, you know, they're, they're not at that point yet. And it's similar with Mikel Arteta, where I do genuinely think he will go on and be a good coach someday, but he ain't going to have time to sit and learn his trade at Arsenal. He ain't going to have time to make all his mistakes and do all his learning at a club of this size should have done that elsewhere then got a job like this when you're a little bit wiser a little bit older a little bit maybe older is not even an issue but a little bit more long in the tooth as they say not as your first job and it's not an environment in which you can make mistakes and get away with them because the level of expectation surpasses what he's currently delivering so you could say that and look I mean, let's let's see how it goes on Friday. If we end up, um, if we end up beating Aston Villa, and some results go our way at the weekend, then the the overall kind of position that we'd be in won't be as bad, and and you can look at that with a little bit more positivity. But let's see what happens against Villa, because if we don't win that game, I think it, it's a bit of a disaster. Uh, I talked about the need to win both. You know, taking four points wouldn't be the end of the world as such but it's not satisfactory. So anything less than that would be a disaster. Let's be honest. Uh, let's say a big thank you to Side Abdullah for your very, very kind Super Chat donation, mate. Thank you so much, uh, regular uh, viewer, listener, contributor to the show as well um, in terms of your donation, So Side, thank you uh, so, so much, mate. And I uh, hope you're well. And um, yeah. Right. Uh, let's... Uh, Wrap it up there. Um, I'm going to leave it, and I'll be back a little bit later on with another show. Uh, need to think about what to chat about on that one. If you've got any suggestions, let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know in the comments section uh, after this video's uh, finished. But we will bring you another piece of content a little bit later on today. Um, yeah, the mood isn't great today. I got to be honest, but I'll catch you all a little bit later on. Until then, take care of yourselves. Stay safe, and uh, up the Arsenal.